The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, August 31st, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist with Dan Savage filling in for Mike Pesca. Well, it was only a matter of time. Woke up this morning to the big news, the big reveal, the big finger point. What caused Hurricane Harvey? What destroyed Houston? The gays and the trans. It wasn't all that hot, humid air rising up into the atmosphere near the equator, a tropical storm supercharged by our warming oceans, which are warming thanks to man-made climate change. No, 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 no. It was Anise Parker, the former lesbian mayor of Houston. It was trans people peeing in bathrooms. It was a gay street party planned for New Orleans. Right Wing Watch reported this morning that Pastor Kevin Swanson, close personal friend of Ted Cruz and Mike Huckabee, says Jesus is so angry about LGBT people getting elected, going to the bathroom, and partying on Bourbon Street that he sent Harvey to destroy Houston. Jesus sends the message home, unless they repent, unless Americans repent, unless Houston repents, unless New Orleans repents, they will all likewise perish. That's the message that the Lord Jesus Christ is sending home right now to America. Is America listening? Uh, So Kevin Swanson's Jesus is all-knowing and all-powerful, but incapable, it seems, of a surgical strike. Annoyed by a lesbian mayor in Houston and a gay street party in the French Quarter, God sent a hurricane. Another one. He sent Katrina to destroy New Orleans in 2005. The same types of people were saying then because Jesus was angry about that very street party, Southern Decadence. So angry that Jesus drowned little old ladies in their attics in the Ninth Ward, sick people in their beds in hospitals, and old folks in retirement homes. Bourbon Street and the French Quarter, site of Southern Decadence, place where the party was going to happen, survived Katrina unscathed. Because Kevin's God is a mighty God and an angry God. Jesus is all-knowing and all-powerful, but he is, it seems, a lousy shot. The Mr. Magoo of higher powers. Fun fact, we executed Nazis after World War II for ordering what's known as reprisal killings, rounding up and shooting innocent villagers after resistance fighters staged an attack. And Kevin would have us believe that Jesus, the Prince of Peace, the Friend of the Poor, the Lamb of God, etc., will happily drown little old ladies in nursing homes because he's angry at the gay men cavorting in bars on the other side of town. So Swanson credits to Jesus the moral code of Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. In a way, Swanson wants us to believe that Jesus is worse than the Nazis. The Nazis executed innocent villagers to instill terror, of course, but also because villagers were easier to round up than resistance fighters. The Nazis weren't omniscient. Jesus supposedly is. So if the gays are pissing him off, Jesus doesn't have to drown little old ladies in their attics as during Katrina or a van filled with children as during Harvey. He has the power to send a hurricane to the French Quarter and then only to the gay end of Bourbon Street in the French Quarter or into the mayor's office in Houston. But Swanson's Jesus doesn't do that. He kills the innocent. So Jesus, according to Kevin Swanson, believes in and engages in reprisal killings, collective punishment, just like Adolf Hitler, Pol Pot, Joseph Stalin, and Saddam Hussein. I don't believe that about Jesus, because I don't believe in Jesus. I am shocked always, however, that so many people who claim to believe in Jesus listen to and tolerate scumbags like Kevin Swanson, who are constantly insulting Jesus. Okay, on today's show, I will spiel about the Nashville statement, 
But first, an interview with the author and journalist Peggy Orenstein, author of the New York Times bestseller, Girls and Sex. So I wanted to talk with Peggy Orenstein about her most recent book, Girls and Sex, which was published in March 2016. Uh, We've talked about it before, Peggy and I, on my show, and Peggy's been out there talking about her book ever since. Now the paperback is out, and Peggy is leaving Girls and Sex to get to work on her next book. But I had a few more questions for Peggy about Girls and Sex and about how an author feels about a book at this post-publication, post-tour, post-speaking circuit stage. So, Peggy, uh, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Always glad to do it. I have a very specific, weird author-to-author question for you about the place you're at right now with the book. After the hardcover came out, after the book tour, after the payback release, after the TED Talk viewed 1,720,346 times, three of those views (laughs) were mine, and you're welcome. But before we get meta, I want you to tell uh, listeners out there who may not be familiar with the book, who may have missed all the publicity and the New York Times bestseller listing, uh, tell us about the book. What inspired you to write Girls and Sex, and what did you learn about Girls and Sex? from the girls you interviewed? Well, you know, the short answer is that I have a daughter, and she was um, starting to be, well, she is a teenager now, and I had been writing for years about girls and about the sexualization of little girl culture, and I kind of wanted to know, you know, what was coming next, so it was a little bit of a defensive move to write the book that I wanted to be a better parent. But I think, you know, one of the biggest takeaways for me from the book was that young women, there was this kind of dichotomy that young women felt that they could engage in sexual behavior, and and the girls that I spoke with were sort of later high school, early college young women, but they didn't necessarily feel like they could enjoy it. So that you say they didn't feel entitled to enjoy it. Is there a difference between they didn't feel they could enjoy it or they didn't feel entitled to enjoy it? They didn't feel entitled to enjoy it. They didn't even know. I mean, I I was just there was something that came up, and we're going to talk later about post book stuff. But I was looking at um. There's this puberty book called The Care and Keeping of You. It's the American Girl book. I don't know if you know it, but it's the most popular. It's it's on um, my nightstand. Yeah. It's the most popular puberty book for girls. And The Care and Keeping of You, too, is the one that has the um, diagram of the external genitalia. And Mm -hmm. they have, like, you know, the labia, and they have various, you know, the vagina, the anus. They don't label the clitoris. It doesn't exist. We need to and, insert like a record scratch sound effect there so I can go, what? What? I know. And it's emblematic to me. I call it the American psychological clitoridectomy that we impose on our girls. <laughs> Seriously, that like, you know, from when they're born, parents are more likely to name little boys' body parts. You know, like you say, here's your pee-pee or, you know, something like that. And with girls, there's just like silence between navel and knees. And then they go mm-hmm. into their puberty education classes and they learn that boys have erections and ejaculations and girls have periods and unwanted pregnancy. And they see that internal diagram that looks like, you know, what, a Georgia O'Keeffe painting or something like the steer head. We never say clitoris. Fewer than half of teenage girls have ever masturbated. And then they go into their partnered encounters. And we somehow mm-hmm. believe that they're going to think that sex is about them and that they will be able to you know, to articulate their needs and their wants and their desires or even know what those might be. So we really set girls up for feeling disempowered privately, even as they feel more and more empowered in the public realm. 
you know, the, 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 the flip of that stat is, you know, when you say fewer than half of all teenage girls masturbate, we all think, and all boys do. But right. what well, message is the culture sending all, boys? 90% have at least once by the time they're 17, certainly. And the rates at for At least once this boys, afternoon by the time I was 17. Yeah. The, the rates for boys, you know, starting at 14, they go up, 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 up as they get older. And the rates for girls remain um, static. So, the girls so what do we do about that? Well, you know, I think if you look at the culture, there are there are references to male masturbation constantly. I mean, once you start thinking about it, you notice it's just constant, whether you're watching Silicon Valley or, you know, what whatever you're doing, male masturbation is everywhere. Female masturbation is silent, and I think one thing is, is that we have to break that silence. Not, you know, I mean, 14 is a tough time to do it, but little kids, as you know, since you used to have one, you know, preschoolers masturbate all the time, and mm-hmm. to... Even make a girl, you know, even just to say something like, hey, touching your vulva really feels good. We don't do that at Grandma's Thanksgiving table, but, you know, it's it's a great thing to do. To, to just, like, acknowledge that that exists for them and to give them resources, like Heather Karina's book on uh, SEX, which is a great contemporary Bible for teenage sexuality, just to let them know that that exists and I don't know, you know, have them listen to podcasts like this, whatever. I put it in the book, I put it in terms of, I mean, I'm going around to high schools and colleges, so I'm, you know, pretty pretty vocal about it. But I talk about, there's a term that Sarah McClellan, who's a professor at University of Michigan, coined called intimate justice. And it's this mm-hmm. idea that sex is political, just like, you know, who does the dishes in your home or who vacuums the rug. And it raises similar questions about who is benefiting from an encounter, who feels entitled to encounter, who feels entitled to an enjoy in an encounter. And those questions are important to talk to with girls as well as boys because, you know, what I kept really coming back to with this book was that I didn't want young women's early experiences to be something that they had to get over. And that was just too often what I was seeing. Mm-hmm. You uh, cite, uh, among the, the, the problems that you've d- detected out there in sort of sex and girl culture, the rise of pubic hair removal, which isn't just a thing young women are doing. Lots of young men are doing that too, gay and straight. One upside, pubic lice, almost extinct. So what do you think is problematic about the war on pubic hair? Well, the war on pubic hair, yeah, guys are starting to do it too, which is sort of interesting, although I think that they do it because it's supposed to make their penis look bigger, that's my understanding. But with girls, what they would say to me at first was, well, I do it for myself. And, you know, and I would be kind of like, well, geez, if you were on a desert island with nothing but a razor blade, this is how you choose to spend (laughs) your time? And these are the same girls who, like, haven't masturbated to an orgasm, yet they're shaving for Uh themselves, you know, so that's a little bit of a problem right there. But um, when they would talk about it more, it became more of an issue about fear of humiliation, that they were afraid that they would hook up with a guy and he would reach down there, feel hair, and be grossed out, and maybe even, you know, leave or talk about them to other people, and that worried them. And the more I kind of listened to girls and thought about this, the more I thought about the 1920s when, that was when flapper fashions first came into style, so women's legs and arms were exposed, and that's when they started shaving their armpits and their legs because it was like their arms and legs were for the first time open to public scrutiny and critique and to Mm -hmm. and i think that there's a way that the way that the girls articulate the shaving trend is that it becomes about another way 
that their bodies are open to public critique and that it's about how it looks to somebody else rather than how it feels to them in the most, you know, intimate realm of their lives. And that worries me. One of the things you talked about uh, in the book and in your TED Talk that I think is so smart was the problem with our conversation about consent, particularly on college campuses, that all this emphasis on getting to consent, you getting uh, getting that yes, and then you're good to go. And right. you detect a problem. And I'm playing the devil's advocate. What is the problem with that? Isn't consent the most important thing? Isn't it good to go after yes? Of course, it's important. I mean, but it's like a base. It's like the it's it's like the lowest bar, right? Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it should be better than that. And so we're talking to kids about yes, you have to have an enthusiastic yes, absolutely. But then we're not talking to them about anything that happens after yes. And we're is it really going to be good after you know, yes? Not necessarily. You can say yes, and it can be completely consensual and be lousy and a bad yeah. experience. Yeah, or, or or kind of not. You know, yeah. What happens then? What happens if it's not? great after you say yes. That's confusing when yes has Mm -hmm. been the whole, you know, line in the sand for good sex versus bad sex or sex versus non-sex or whatever. And I am not in any way mitigating the importance of consent or the that it's essential to have that consent. But that's where you start. That's not where you end. Exactly. I've said for years that, you know, consent all too often when you're talking about men and women having sex, they get to consent and then they shut up. They stop communicating. They stop talking because everything after consent is assumed. Do you think that that's less true with two men? Oh, my God. Absolutely. That's the other half of my point. Two guys go to bed together and you get to, you know, you're going to go to bed. You get to yes. And that's the beginning of the rest of the conversation because you can't assume anything. I always tell straight people, if there's anything you could steal from gay culture besides Brunch and sit-ups, it's the four magic words. <laughs> come after consent. Come after that yes in every gay encounter. You get to yes, and then one or the other or both guys say, what are you into? Yeah. And at that moment, you can rule anything in, anything out. It's incredibly empowering. Even as a young gay man, when I was first becoming sexually active, and the guys I slept with would say that to me, it was so empowering. And that's not said to Uh, by young straight people to each other, male or female. You're not asked, so what is it that you want to do? What is it that turns you on? What is it that would excite you? Yep. That's that's been my impression talking to gay teenage boys, that it's a completely different conversation. Or it is a conversation, I should say. There's a conversation. So here's what... I, I, I wanted to talk about it. It's weird to interview an author uh, about their new book when their book's been out long enough to be in paperback, when they've done uh, all of their book tours, all their public appearances, their TED Talk. I'm working on a new book. Yeah, you're working on a new book. We're also probably a little sick of talking about your book at this stage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the question I wanted to put to you was this. Every time I wrote a book and did a book tour, I just regretted so terribly that I couldn't rewrite the book after the tour or write the book after the tour and after all the appearances because I would meet people, I would learn more things in debating uh, whatever the book was about with audiences. My ideas would become more refined and uh, my arguments would become sharper. And I just, like the books that I brought out, now I can't even read them because compared to the conversations I was having with audiences and speeches giving at the end, the book is so deficient. Do you have the same lament and regret? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, what do you know now about the subject of girls and sex that you didn't know when you finished the book? Well, you know, I think it's just, it's a, it's an interesting process because you have like the whole inchoate thing of like life that you're trying to make into a book. Then you make it into a book. Then you have to make it into like media bites. And then mm-hmm. the final iteration for me is that you make it into a talk that you give, you know, wherever people are bringing you to speak. And each one of those, you sort of, it changes so that by the time you're 
in the talk phase, first of all, you've distilled it to the points that land the hardest with your audience, which are things like what I said to you, like the American psychological clitoridectomy or um, the ideas about oral sex or, or what you know, whatever it is, or just being able to say one of the main takeaways of the book, like I said at the beginning, is that girls, young women feel entitled to engage in sexual behavior but not enjoy it. Boom. I couldn't have told you that when I was writing the book. I realized, like, after talking to audiences that that was one of the things that was really bugging me about the whole bugging is kind of a funny word for it, but, you know, that that, that, that was one of the, the main points that I had was that there was this huge disconnect between this public expression girls had of, you know, their ambition and all of these things, and then the private thing they would say about feeling totally disempowered in their personal lives, and that we, as adults, and maybe as particularly as adult women, had let them down in this regard. So that became really important, and, and yeah, there's this way, I don't know, I always wish that I could reel the book back, like go to everybody and knock on their door and take it back and do it again. And yeah, I can't read, I, I don't read books after, I haven't read any of my books after they've come out. Maybe it's fine. I don't know. I mean, I also think I would have maybe written more if it were today on um, gender identity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a brief thing on a on a girl who expressed asexuality and that was like, that was really new to me at that point. I was kind of like, what are you talking to me for? Um, so what are you working on now? I am working on a boy version now. A boy is in sex. Yes, I am. And so that's why I asked you that, that question about gay boys and consent, because my impression talking to gay boys is that they speak very differently than straight boys about how the conversation goes in their sexual encounters. In my conversations with teenage boys who you know call me at my show or write to me at my column, there's often this terror of doing it wrong, whatever it is. They're doing it wrong, uh, and they don't know what they're doing. And yeah. you take Fe- heterosexual young... Performance anxiety te- or fear of doing yeah, performance it anxiety. Wrong, whatever it is. And often they want to please their partners and they please their mm-hmm. young female partners if they're sexually active with other teenagers. Uh, and if the culture has socialized young women to not be able to advocate for themselves, to not be able to articulate their desires, and then part puts them in the same room with young teenage boys who are, you know, fear being perceived as inept or not being, not mastering the sex thing. Right. You know, the boy isn't supposed to ask questions, not supposed to get questions, directions, whatever. And the girl isn't offering anything. It's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah, that's pretty much right. And there's not a lot of empathy out there for the boys uh, uh, in this equation, but often the boys are scared and they want to do right by the person that they're with, but they don't know how to ask. And even if they do ask, they may not get the answer that would help them pleasure their partner. Right. I would say that's a big, that that will be (laughs) a big takeaway. Um, I think that really is true. (laughs) And I I think that there isn't a lot of room or, or space made in the culture for boys to talk about those anxieties and concerns and learn how to be better partners. I kind of felt when I finished the girl book, at first I wasn't that interested because I thought, oh, you know, I've been writing about girls for 25 years. I don't really write about boys. But I really felt like I had half a conversation and I had so many boys writing to me and saying, well, this is my perspective on what you wrote and this is how I feel as a teenage boy about it. Just out of the blue, you know, that I started thinking, huh, maybe I really do need to do this. And then I went and talked to some boys and sort of thought, oh, no, I really need to do this. And I'm actually loving the research because it's so fresh and new for me and I'm finding out so much and really having a lot of um, deep 
amazing conversations with boys, and I wasn't sure that I was going that that was going to happen. When will that book be out? Don't push me. <laughs> <laughs> and are you going to go on the book tour for that book before you finish the book, as we've discussed? Uh, well, I just did. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know. It'll be out like in a couple years. Well, you know? I very much look forward to it, and I look forward to Thank talking you. with you about it when it comes out, and then a year or two later, after it's been out for a while. <laughs> Peggy Orenstein, author of New York Times bestseller, Girls and Sex, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Dan. Hi, I'm Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And now, the spiel. On Tuesday of this week, a group of evangelical, quote-unquote, Christian, quote-unquote, leaders released a manifesto attacking... You'll never guess. Can you guess? I bet you can't. Okay, okay. If you guessed LGBT people, gays, married gays, trans men and women, you are correct. The Nashville Statement, 14 articles, nailed not to a church door in Wittenberg, but to a flashy donation-soliciting website, condemns homosexual immorality and transgenderism and more. People were literally drowning in their homes in Houston on Tuesday, the nation's fourth largest city underwater. But evangelical Christian leaders weren't going to let something as inconsequential as human suffering distract them from all that hot, sweaty gay sex they know is going on somewhere. The craziest thing about the Nashville Statement is that for all the attention it got, hashtag Nashville Statement trended on Twitter for two days, it didn't contain any surprises. The authors of the statement, the grandly named Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Coalition for Biblical Sexuality, came out against premarital sex, gay sex, pre- and postmarital varieties, same-sex marriage, and the rights and very existence of transgender people. As a gay man, myself, full disclosure, I am a huge homo. As a gay man, reading the Nashville statement was like getting flipped off by someone who's been yelling fuck you in your face for 40 years. Yeah, yeah, I get it. You don't like me right now and always. You don't like me. For the under 40s, that was a Sally Field 1985 Best Actress Oscar acceptance speech reference. And I'm sorry, but the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Coalition for Biblical Sexuality? Quite a mouthful for an organization that opposes oral sodomy. Now, in fairness, the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, a Coalition for Biblical blah, 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 they did learn a shiny new word, polyamory. God did not, they wrote, design marriage to be polygamous or polyamorous, the Nashville statement reads in part. That is going to come as a surprise to Moses, who had three wives, King David, who had eight wives, and Solomon, the wife-taking champion of the Old Testament, who topped out with 300 wives and 700 concubines. It's also going to come as a shock to whoever wrote the books of Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, all of which affirm polygamy and include hints on what today we might call polyamorous best practices. Gallant married his brother's widow because his brother died before his wife could have a son. Deuteronomy 25.5. Goofus disowned his firstborn son in favor of a younger son born to a second wife. Deuteronomy 21.15. 
All right. The people behind the Nashville statement, the usual bearers of false witness against their LGBT neighbors, Tony Perkins, James Dobson, James Robeson, et al., believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. Reading the stuff in the Nashville statement about polygamy and polyamory made me think, you know, that these guys might want to give the Bible a read sometime. Writers have been known to give promotional blurbs to books they haven't actually read because writers are busy writing their own books and some haven't learned yet to say no to blurb requests. But if you're going to spend decades blurbing the same book over and over and over again, seems to me that you might want to read that book at some point. Maybe. Speaking of the signatories of the Nashville Statement, I'd really like to see the Venn diagram of the men who signed the Nashville Statement and men who have girlfriends in Canada. I expect there's a lot of overlap. Oh, I wish you could meet my girlfriend, my girlfriend who lives in Canada. She couldn't be sweeter. I wish you could meet her, my girlfriend who lives in Canada. Her name is Alberta. She lives in Vancouver. She cooks like my mother and sucks like a Hoover. I email her every single day just to make sure that everything's okay. It's a pity she lives so far away in Canada. In the silver lining department, you'll find this shocker buried deep within the Nashville statement. Homosexuals are invited to walk in purity with Jesus Christ. Stop sucking dicks because the thought of men sucking each other off keeps poor Tony Perkins up at night. Stop getting gay married because all those hot gay honeymoon blowjobs keep Tony Perkins up at night. And start, quote, living a rich and fruitful life pleasing to God, who isn't sitting up at night with Tony Perkins obsessing about all the gay men out there sucking off their husbands because God's got better things to do and or does not exist. This, believe it or not, is a teensy-weensy sign of progress. Right-wing Christian bigots used to push the idea that Jesus could turn gay people straight. Now they're pushing the idea that Jesus might be able to inspire some gay people to live lives devoid of intimacy, romance, love, and commitment, and wedding cake stained with the tears of Christian bakers. They've moved from Jesus can make you straight to Jesus can't make you straight, but he can make you lonely and miserable. Sounds like a lousy deal to me, but it's nice to see evangelical leaders acknowledging the immutability of homosexuality. Gaby steps. All right, all that said, seems to me that a screenshot of the Nashville statement should in the future appear in the dictionary next to the word unfucking necessary, which isn't actually a word in English, I realize, but it should be, and it most definitely is a word in German. Evangelical leaders hate gays and they're scared of trans people. Yeah, so what else is new? And why now? Why does the Nashville statement even exist? Well, according to the leaders who drafted it, they had to reaffirm their opposition to all those hot, sweaty, gay honeymoon blowjobs and all those scary, confusing transgender people who need to pee because, quote, the secular spirit of our age presents a great challenge to the Christian church, unquote. That challenge can be summed up in one long and kind of rambling question. Will the Christian church, like so many other faiths, continue to get human sexuality wrong despite the science in the same way the Christian church got the movement of the planets wrong for five centuries despite Galileo? Or will conservative Christians let go of the Bronze Age and embrace the spirit of our age? (laughs) 
That's it for today's show. Mary Wilson and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. Today, Mary signed on to hashtag Chicago Statement, no ketchup on hot dogs. And Daniel added his name to the hashtag Portland Statement, no beardless baristas. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcast and a signatory to the hashtag New Orleans Statement. It's not public urination if you're on Bourbon Street. Thanks to Gist host Mike Pesca, author of hashtag Long Island Statement, no taking Billy Joel's name in vain, who's back next Tuesday. I wanted to end my turn on the Gist with Schlemiel Schlemazel, Hassan Pfeffer Incorporated, but Mike insisted I go with Umperu, Deperu, Duperu, and thanks for listening.